As we uh, take our Bibles this morning, God's Word, I uh, invite you to open up to the book of Genesis. Uh, we're looking this morning, and we're wrapping up our, our time through Genesis, and uh, I've learned much. I, I hope the Lord has um, impressed some things upon your heart as a result of our time through the Word. Genesis chapter 49 Verses 28 through the end of chapter 50, I do not intend to read it all. I'll read some parts of it in a few moments, but uh, before we get to it, I invite you to pray with me. We sang a moment ago, Speak, O Lord. That song was chosen intentionally. Um, that's the prayer. We want God to speak. It is His living and active word that accomplishes um, His work in our lives. So we're asking for that help. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want you to speak. Speak so that um, we are made alive if we are yet, as yet dead spiritually. Speak so that we may be made more like Christ in character. Speak, Father, so that we have a picture of your glory and your beauty and your grace and your mercy. Speak, O Lord, and renew us. Help us to grasp the beauty and the glory and the wonder of who you are as revealed in your word. Lord, I need your help. We all know, in this room, we all know that the words of a mere man can accomplish absolutely nothing of eternal and lasting value. So we need you to speak above and beyond me, cause your true living and active word to take hold in our hearts. And Lord, in preparation for that, we need you to give us that um, expectation in each of us that we're going to hear from you. So we pray, would you do that now? For the glory of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Uh, when I was a, a kid... Um, I think I annoyed my parents a fair amount because I was always asking why, 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 why. Uh, if they told me to do something, I would often ask why. And I, I know in retrospect it was probably, and I, I have to admit, it was a rebellious challenge to their authority to be sure, uh, as if I somehow needed a, or had a right to decide whether or not to obey based on the answer that they give to me. But I also know this about myself. Uh, if something doesn't seem purposeful, if if a thing or idea is not somehow useful or beautiful, then I'm inclined to disdain it or even reject it. Meaning and, and purpose as an idea, as an ideal, even though imperfectly applied in my own life, it's, it's the rational lens through which I interpret the world. And I'm often troubled, even annoyed, with just because. I think intuitively that's all of us. We order our lives around purpose, and so we want to see purpose in the things that we observe. We want to naturally understand the meaning and purpose of everything. There's a song that, that came to mind as I was studying. The, the, the artist John Andrasik, he's of the band Five for Fighting, he wrote this song about a father's love for his son, and he captured that longing for answers in all of us. There was a man back in 95 who's Heart ran out of summers, but before he died, I asked him, wait, what's the sense in life? In the chorus, he further uh, 
imagines. Here's a riddle for you. Find the answer. There is a reason for the world. And then later in the song, he he tells his son that he's not able to understand everything. There are secrets that we still have left to find. There have been mysteries from the beginning of time. There are answers we're not wise enough to see. He said, you're looking for a clue. And this is why the song kind of appeals to me, I guess. You're looking for a clue? I love you free, he says to his son. We live our lives, as, as I said, and we order them around purposes. But, but we know this. Things happen to us. Circumstances and other people do things that inconvenience us and, and maybe thwart our plans or even hurt us in some profound way. And it's natural in light of that to want to know why. But because of God's covenant love for his people, the scripture teaches us that the reason anything and everything happens is not happenstance or chance or misfortune, but for good, for our good. Now, looking at your Bibles, and I asked you to open up to Genesis. Like I said, I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to summarize what's happening here. Verses, uh, chapter 49, verse 28 to 32. It really begins there with Jacob reiterating. He, made, he gave some instructions for his burial in the land of Canaan. You need to take me back. And that was in a previous section. He, he had already uh, asked Joseph to make that promise. He wanted to be buried after he died in the cave that Abraham, his grandfather, bought from Ephron the Hittites. And then after these instructions, we see in chapter 49, verse 33, when Jacob finished finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. He died. Now, as we move to chapter 50, verses 1 through 14, there's really there an extensive description beginning, first of all, with Joseph's grief of his father's death. He wept on him. But it culminates with the burial of Jacob's body in Canaan. We're given some details about, about a 40-day embalming period. That was the Egyptian custom. There was a 70-day period of mourning, also an Egyptian tradition. We're told there in that section how Joseph requested permission from Pharaoh, his boss, to keep his promise to Jacob. He wanted to take him to the land of Canaan. And we're also told in that section that Joseph and his brothers and all of the servants of Pharaoh actually made the procession to Canaan. Huge entourage. They remained in Canaan seven days where they mourned. We're told, for some reason, I don't know why, that the Canaanites noticed it. It became, it was obvious that they they noticed it. And then they returned to Egypt. So that's all in that section. I'm not going to unpack that extensively. Now I want to pick it up in chapter 50, verses 15 through 28. And I'm going to read that section. Chapter 50, 15 through 28. So this is following the burial of Jacob in Canaan. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now... Please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? That's what I want to focus on this morning. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted to Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The Word of God. Now, as we consider this section of Scripture, Joseph gives the overarching purpose of all that happened to him. He said to them, God intended it for good. Now, drilling down into the details of the scriptures, what I want to do is give our attention today to three truths. Three truths. They are these. First, evil is an age-old problem. Second, God is good and only does good. God is good and only does good. And third, God will fulfill his promises. Well, first, evil is an age-old problem. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But perhaps you've seen the news. A couple of brothers in the province of Saskatchewan in Canada, they went on a rampage and they fatally stabbed 10 people. Another story, you may be familiar with this, a young man in Memphis live-streamed a murder spree on Facebook. Four are dead, three others have been injured. Every single day, it seems like there are heinous acts of evil. And of course, we know that history is awash in, in example after example of unspeakable human depravity. Nero, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot with his uh, Khmer Rouge policy. And we wonder what kind of darkness could so possess people to do such things. The, the inescapable truth is that whether it's on a grand scale, like these that make the news, or from person to person, people do evil things. It's not a new problem. It's not a new problem. We see that in our text. So what do we do with that age-old problem? Well, first of all, I want to suggest that we acknowledge it. We see in the story that Joseph's brothers came to him. Joseph acknowledged the truth about them. He said, as for you, you meant it for evil against me. You meant evil against me. He drills down right into their motivations. You, you intended me evil. He didn't whitewash that. The world is evil. It is malignant, hurtful, wicked, causing harm. That's what evil is. Wickedness, hurtful, causing harm. And Joseph is saying to them, you did this. You intended to destroy me. An evil act 
intentionally perpetrated by a person towards another. We know this. Of course, it's not loving. It breaks God's law. We're commanded to love neighbor as self. So we can conclude evil is sin. Not only that, but Joseph's brothers describe their own acts of evil as sin and transgression. Acknowledging sin recognizes where it comes from. Now, of course, we're not, I'm not telling you anything. We'll flip back to the beginning of Genesis. We, we find from chapter 3, the origin is, of course, our first parents, Adam and Eve. They ate that fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, even though the Lord forbade it. They, they entered into a, a, a decision where they said, whatever God said to do, we're not going to do that right now. We've got a better idea. That rebellion originated there. And what he, what he did for us, Adam, or against us, you might say, representing the entirety of the human race as our head, he plunged all of us into the effect of his sin. And that's what it says in Romans 5.12. Now, we can't just blame Adam because we look at our own lives. We're born in sin. Yes, we're guilty in Adam. But none of us can say, well, I've never sinned. We all actually sin because we are sinful. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All excludes no one. Sin is really a failure to measure up to God's standard, really missing the bullseye, missing the mark. Now, I get this, and, and, and of course, you, you might have this sense too. Our contemporary culture doesn't like the word sin and evil applied to us. They want to pick out the big bad guys and say, that's sin, that's evil. They, they think it's reserved perhaps for the most, only the most heinous crimes, like mass murders and things like that. The occasional deception the unfaithfulness in marriage, the decision to say something unkind behind someone's back, those, that's, those, that's just maybe mistakes, maybe just like, well, missteps, misspoke. Politicians, I mean, wouldn't it be refreshing if one day they just got up and said, you know, I was wrong. <laughs> I have never heard a politician say, you know, I, I think I got that whole thing about inflation just wrong. Or, or, or you know, I shouldn't have took that stuff. That would be cool, wouldn't it? They never admit sin. In fact, that's, that's baked into rebellious culture, isn't it? We don't own up. We're inclined to think of sin in degrees of badness. Yeah, I may have gossiped, but at least I didn't kill someone. Well, the Bible tells us that all sin is condemnable before God. All of it. There isn't anything excluded from the list of sins that somehow, like God looks at that one and goes, yeah, well, all right, yeah, it's not, that one's not a big deal to me. James says this, forever keeps the whole law, but fails at one point, becomes guilty of all of it. So the undeniable truth that we must accept is that we are guilty sinners before a holy and righteous God. In 1 John, it says this, If we say we have not sinned, we make him, that is God, a liar, and his word is not in us. So what then? Acknowledge sin? What then? If you're the sinner, and you and I certainly are, then we repent. There's the implications of it, right? That's what Joseph's brothers did. Now, whether or not Jacob had actually commanded them to tell Joseph to forgive them, that's debatable. But, no doubt it would be true that Jacob, before he died, wanted his sons to be reconciled. 
But they petition Joseph, you can see in verse 17 of chapter 50. They say to him, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. They're owning up here. They're repenting to Joseph. They're acknowledging their evil. When you repent, this is what we do, the age-old problem of evil, the age-old problem of sin. When you repent, you must confess to the one you've sinned against. You must acknowledge the sinfulness of your deed without excuse. Without excuse. It's not, I'm sorry, but... James says, James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. I'm sorry, but is somehow justifying the sin. No, we, we simply must acknowledge in our confession, our repentance, I did evil because of my own sinful desires. I had a sinful desire and I did evil. Not only must we confess to one another, we must confess to the Lord. But there's great relief in this, brothers and sisters in Christ, great relief. 1 John 1, 9, oft quoted and probably memorized by many of us, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins to the Lord, He, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where would we be? Where would we be if we did not have this in the Bible? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just. And the basis of, of his forgiveness is, is not the words of our confession. The basis of our forgiveness is his faithfulness and justice to see Christ crucified in our place because that's the basis of our forgiveness. It's not that God said, ah, oh, don't worry about it. No, God poured out his just wrath upon his son. And so when you confess your sin, you're saying, I needed Jesus. And that's the only reason I can come to you, Father. Our confession isn't for God. It doesn't change his disposition towards us as his children. We confess because we need to be reminded of our pardon in Christ. It's a way of saying to God, I don't want to do that anymore. Give me grace not to do that anymore. So the age-old problem of sin and evil. Acknowledge it, repent of it. But third, if you've been sinned against, and you will be, forgive that's what we see Joseph did. He said to them, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Am I the judge of your soul? Will you give an account to me on the last day? It's a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is no. He had forgiven them even before they confessed. He had forgiven them already because he understood he was not in the place of God. He did not have the power to do anything about their sin. Jesus' teaching on prayer, he said this, and this is so vitally important to take to heart, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And here's the other side of this. Here are the implications. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So stop right there. Are you holding something against someone unwilling to forgive? Understand what this means. If you do not forgive them, God will not forgive you. And if God will not forgive you, it means you will be cast into hell. 
The reason for that is because you forgive based on what God has done for you. You understand that before God, you are guilty of an eternal offense against God that Jesus paid at the cross. When you receive that, that entire record is taken away. That paltry little thing that someone did against you does not even compare to what you have done to God who has forgiven you your eternal debt. So how? In light of Christ's forgiveness, his payment for your sin, how could you withhold forgiveness from another? I understand deep wounds leave deep scars. You still experience that. doesn't mean you feel good about a wound that somebody inflicted on you. It doesn't even necessarily mean you trust that individual. But what you're saying is, God, this is your deal now. I'm not going to expect them to pay me back in any way. It's your deal. We forgive. Well, that's the age-old problem of evil. Next thing I want to focus on is the fact that God is good and only does what is good. God is good and only does what is good. Now, I know, I think most of you are all agreeing with that statement right now. Word precision matters to me. Some, some of you know this about me. Sometimes I annoy others even as I'm apt to transgress this myself. But when I point out that the answer to the question how are you, is I'm well, not I'm good. When somebody is curious about your sense of contentedness and satisfaction, I'm pretty sure it's not a moral question, okay? <laughs> and I know we use that term, I'm good. But good is a moral answer. Jeopardy style here, the board is yours. Daily double, you got attributes of God for 500. Answer! According to Mark 10, 18, the character quality attributable to God alone, answer, what is good? God alone is good. I'm feeling good today. I'm feeling upright. I'm feeling moral. I'm feeling perfect. I'm well. But only God is good. It's an unquestionable revealed truth. Now, Saying that God is good, we can accept that, right? The idea is and is routinely challenged by philosophers and, let me say, sufferers, people who suffer. That idea of the goodness of God is often challenged. You follow me on this. You suffer. Your child dies. Therefore, God is not good and therefore cannot exist. You've heard this argument, I'm sure. That philosophical problem was the major focus of 17th century philosopher Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. Maybe you've heard of his seminal work called Theodicy. But you don't have to be a philosopher to struggle with the problem of sin and evil and the omnibenevolence of God. You don't have to be a philosopher. I just happened upon this headline last week. Perhaps you saw it. The so-called Princess of Pop, Britney Spears. She has declared herself to be an atheist because of the suffering she experienced from her family under this conservatorship. Her statement, how can a good and loving God allow evil? I hurt, therefore God is not. I hurt, therefore God is not. I hurt, therefore God is not good. Now, my point from the text, that God is good and only does good, it doesn't mean that evil does not exist. Neither does it mean that God is not in control. Let's look at the text. 
In Joseph's explanation to his brothers when they came to him, he gives them a lesson in God's providence. Certainly the brothers did an evil thing. He said, 50-20, you meant evil against me. Again, what did the brothers do? Just to recap. We have to go back. We'll just kind of highlight this. Genesis chapter 37, Jacob favored Joseph. And that just created a problem for his brothers. It wasn't his fault, but his brothers were jealous of him. Joseph, being morally upright, we can conclude, brought a bad report about his brothers to Jacob. That further inflamed their anger. Joseph shared his own dreams, which eventually came true and, and landed him in Egypt, but he shared his dreams that one day he would be in prominence and they would be coming to him begging for help. It happened, but they hated him for those dreams. They threw him in a pit. They intended to kill him. They ended up selling him as a slave. And they ultimately lied to their father, Jacob, that he had been killed by a wild animal when they brought that multicolored robe or long-sleeved robe back to their father with the animal blood on it. Again, he said to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Let's unpack what Joseph says. For good. For good. You meant it for, God meant it for good. So what is good? What is good? Now in the text, the original word behind good here is slightly different than other instances where we see the English word in our Bibles that says good. And for example, in the creation story, God declared what he had made to be good. That Hebrew word behind good in Genesis 1 is tob, means excellent or pleasing, agreeable or becoming, pristine, beautiful, whatever. It's, it's like, this is good. But the word in our text, chapter 50, verse 20, it's related, but slightly different word. It's a compound word of tob, with Adonijah, meaning my Lord is Yahweh. So, to our text, God meant it for good, for Tob, Adonijahu. Tob Adonijahu means my Lord Yahweh is good. So I take it here, Tob Adonijahu. That's that's a, a particular act under God's sovereign control that shows the goodness of God. Tob Adonayahu. So in this, Joseph did not say that the evil acts of his brothers were good, but rather it was for good, to show the goodness of the Lord to his people. That's what it was for. Now, again, people will struggle with the problem of evil, especially when they're in the midst of some kind of suffering, they might pose a couple of questions. First, if God uses evil for good, does that not mean that God is somehow complicit in evil? If he uses it, isn't he somehow responsible for it or participating in the evil? That's hard for us to separate those two, isn't it? James deals with this in his epistle. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, and that temptation could be suffering, that can, any kind of evil. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own evil, by his own desire. So God's word is clear here. Evil is the outworking of our own sinful desires. We cannot blame God for this. Sin corrupts each of us. 
Our inclinations, our natural desires have been tainted by sin. So when you and I sin, we are acting independently of God. We're in effect saying in that moment, God, I do not need you. I do not trust you. That's what sin is. So God is not complicit in sin, even though he does use it for good. But the second question, if God rules over all, then he has the power to stop evil. Right? So if God rules, well, why wouldn't he stop it? Why wouldn't he prevent it? That's the theodicy question. Well, it's because God has enveloped the evil deeds of man into his plan for a greater purpose. And in the case of Joseph, the Tob Adonayahu, the good was to bring about that many people should be kept alive. It was that good. And we saw the result. Jacob's family was protected by, from the effects of the worldwide famine because Joseph was sent to Egypt by God. Now again, so the problem, if God could have prevented it but didn't, why not? We have to think through this. So think through this with me. If God would prevent all evil, he would have to eliminate all evildoers. Now, is that what we want? We've already established that we're all sinners, right? Is that what we want? Because that includes you and me. If God were to eliminate all evil, we would all be immediately cast into the utter darkness of hell. Rather, what God has done is he has patiently endured evil. He has patiently endured your evil and mine, and he did it for the sake of redeeming some evildoers, <laughs> and that's sinners like you and me, and I'm grateful for that. The Apostle Paul explains this in Romans 3, in 3, 25, 26, in God's forbearance, his patience, right? He passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, that is God, might be the just, might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's why. He has patiently endured so that ultimately he would be proved just and the justifier of all those who have faith in Jesus. So Joseph here suffered so that many people should be kept alive. Now in a much greater sense, and for an eternal benefit, Jesus did the same thing, didn't he? If God could have prevented evil, he could have prevented Jesus from suffering and dying. Yes, he could have. But he suffered and died that we might live. A hideously horrific, unjust act perpetrated on the perfectly spotless, holy, and righteous Son of God. A hideous act of injustice. Jesus willingly accepted that. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So as we look to the cross of Christ, as, as we ruminate on the glories of the gospel, 
we can be confident that God is enfolding absolutely everything into his plan for good, for your eternal good as his child. That oft-quoted verse in Romans chapter 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And it's just the beauty of, of what the Apostle Paul says there, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so, so moving to, to pen this. All things work together for good. Nothing is left out of that all things. All things is the medical diagnosis. The cancer. All things is the death. As hard as it is to imagine the death of one you dearly love. All things is getting fired from your job. All things is the slanderous charge that a friend levels against you. All things is the fire that burnt down your house. All things. There are no accidents, no circumstances, no natural desires, no evil acts on the part of another. And get this, no deeds of carelessness, or stupidity on your own part that will not somehow, some way, be enfolded into God's purposes to work it for good. That is absolutely glorious. Now, <laughs> that doesn't mean we run headlong into evil, say, God's going to work it out for good. The brothers were guilty of sinning against Joseph. They experienced the consequences of that guilt in this present life. But the Lord brought them to a, a greater reward. And you and I have to take that to heart. If you do evil and you belong to the Lord, God will somehow use it for good, but that does not excuse the evil. You will ultimately be forgiven if you're repentant. But don't go down that road. That's just a path of difficulty and suffering. But there's a great comfort. As you look at your past and you see things that, I wish I didn't do that. I wish I didn't say that. If you've repented of these before the Lord, somehow, some way. God is going to enfold it into his plan for your good. And that's a glorious truth that we can take great comfort in. Well, finally, God does all of that because God will fulfill his promises. God will fulfill his promises. All of these things happen. There's the problem of evil. God only does good all the time because he is good. And ultimately, God is going to fulfill his promise. All of that works in concert. Now, when you have an expectation of some future good thing, when you are confident about that, it should inform your present behavior, right? So, for my own example, I guess, if a friend or a family from Canada said he's coming to visit, Kathy and I are going to make preparation, right? We'll, we'll make sure the spare room is ready. We're going to adjust our schedules as much as possible. We're going to plan some meals. We're going to decide what we'll do together. Right? That's normal. We do this, right? It's responsible behavior. Well, how much more? How much more should God's promises inform how we order our lives, how we direct the plans we make and the things that we give priority to now? How much? Hopefully, they would have 
total impact and control. Now, at the end of chapter 50, we read this together, we're told how long Joseph lives, that he was able to see his offspring to the third generation. But then he tells his people, I'm about to die, but, and here's where he's focusing on the promise, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Now, this very thing that Jacob said to his sons, that's the thing that Jacob said to his sons. Now Joseph is saying it to his people. Now, the text is far more descriptive about Jacob's command to his sons. But we're told in chapter 26, Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, he wasn't immediately taken to Canaan. Now, I think the point in this is that Joseph had the same confidence in the promise of God about the land, the same confidence for his people that Abraham, Isaac, and his father Jacob had. He's telling them, you're going to possess the land of Canaan. Bury me there. God will surely visit you. You do this, God will visit you. God will keep his promise. He had confidence to live in light of that promise. He was saying, you have confidence to live in light of that promise. Turn a few pages uh, to Exodus. You don't have to turn there, but Exodus 13, 19. The Israelites, under Moses' leadership, did just that. They took Joseph's bones out of Egypt to Canaan. Since the beginning, since the beginning of time, God has been faithful to fulfill his promise. And where that promise that God has made has, has been as yet unfulfilled, he's provided glimpses and, and markers to reinforce the promise. Right back to the beginning, God, God promised an offspring to the woman to crush the head of the, the serpent tempter, Genesis 3.15. When God judged the earth, he promised Noah that he wouldn't wipe out the human race in judgment with a flood. God promised Abraham a land, an offspring through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God revealed to Judah that through his tribe, that serpent-crushing offspring of the woman would be revealed. To him, the offspring of Judah, one out of that clan, to him would belong the scepter to rule. And to him would come the tribute of the nations and the obedience of all peoples. Genesis 49, 8-10. Now, looking back, we, looking at the scriptures from our vantage point, we have, we have the advantage of seeing what the Gospels reveal, right? That Jesus, the Christ, is the seed of the woman. He stood in the place of sinners. He took the punishment for sin. Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And like the Israelites standing on the shores of the Jordan River, looking cross, across to that promised land, we, you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, we must live in light of the promise that Jesus will return and he will bring us, not just our bones, but he will bring our resurrected bodies into a renewed Eden. God will surely do it. We go to the other end of the Bible. The Lord gave John the apostle this vision in his apocalyptic vision. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, 
I am making all things new. And he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. God will surely visit you. This is the plan. This is what you can look forward to if you're in Christ. No more evil. No more pain. No suffering. No death. Forever, forever you will live in the Tob Adonai. You will live forever in the goodness of God, in the fellowship with Him forever. So, how do we live now knowing that God will surely fulfill his promise. Joseph said, you'll bring my bones up. You make plans. You order your life around it, right? So, brothers and sisters in Christ, we must live now like we belong there. Live now like you belong there. Order your life around God's promises. Be holy. Pursue and delight in what is good and pure and true and beautiful. And when you fail to live according to the promise, we often do, confess your sin and be reminded that God is the one that carries you. Be strengthened by God's word when it's proclaimed and, and the fellowship of the church family. And be ready to share this hope with others who see you endure. Because there will be suffering. And if you're in a good season right now where everything's going great, someone you love is going to die. Something bad may happen at your job. Horrible natural disaster. We, we, I'm, I'm no prophet. Bad stuff happens. And you have to see beyond the bad stuff to know that God is doing some good in it. Remind yourself of that. The temptation will be to say, God, why are you being so mean to me? Why, why do you let bad things happen to me? And, and I'll tell you, maybe it's not the big things, but sometimes it's just the small stuff, right? Getting gas at the Costco gas bar. Somebody spends way too long fiddling with the pump and not knowing how to use it. I'm like, i got to get moving. There's a line up here. What am I doing? <laughs> i got to tell myself, you know what? This is for my good. I may have no idea what that is. But stuff's going to annoy me, slow me down. And more true, I'm going to annoy someone else and slow them down. And I'm going to hope, brother or sister in Christ, you're going to look at me and say, <laughs> I know you were just being a jerk, but God meant it for good. I'll try not to be a jerk. That's life, isn't it? So there's a reason for everything, the answer to the riddle. The age-old problem has been solved in Christ, and if you put your trust in him, it has been solved. But the question is, have you? Have you trusted in him? Have you acknowledged your own sin? Have you acknowledged your need for Jesus to take the full consequence of your sin at the cross, because that is the only way that that will be resolved. That sin sticks to you. It's on you. And it has to be dealt with unless it gets taken from you. 
And the way it will be dealt with is you will be cast into an internal hellfire. But if you see Jesus as crucified in your place, the entire record of that gets plucked off of your body and put onto the Son of God. And the entire righteous goodness of Jesus gets put on you and you get this robe, beautiful, to stand before God. All of that is accomplished in Christ if you repent and believe. And because God is good and only does what is good, we have to take the long view, brothers and sisters, the long view. Life's full of disappointments. It's, there's hardship. There's suffering. There's all kinds of things that we didn't expect. But you got to know this. God is working even in these things for your good. And we can only do this. We can only do this with the eternal promises of God in view. And he has secured these promises for us in, his Christ, in Christ his Son. So keep, keep looking to him as you wait for the day of his appearing. And know that it's all for good. Let's pray. Father, that you have our eternal good in mind and that all of your plans and everything that you do is ordered so that you can accomplish your eternal good. God, you have the power to do that. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us in your son. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for forgiving our sin. Thank you, thank you. Father, keep each of us fixed on that day, hopeful for that day when Christ will return, when we bow before him and every, every knee in creation, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Father, keep us holding on to that day as we deal with the things that we have to deal with, trusting that you've got it. It's for good. Father, we want your Son, our Savior, Jesus, to be glorified in our lives. So may this word be part of what brings that to bear in us. We pray it for the glory of Jesus. Amen.